So I've entitled the message today, The Return of the King. And I I think it's obviously uh, an appropriate message because that's really what we're talking about here. When we come to the second coming of Christ, we really come to the main event that all history has been moving toward. This is it. This is the, the climax of history, really. It's the event that all creation has been yearning for, the event that all the prophets have longed for, the event that all the saints have prayed for, the return of our king, the second coming of Christ. There are many places in scripture that speak of this event. Uh, Here in Revelation 19, we have it in its chronological context. We see here that it comes at the end of the great tribulation. Now, Uh, Back in chapter 16, as some of you will recall, uh, we have there the description of the bull judgments. The bull judgments are the, the final, (coughs) uh, the final phase of of the judgment that will be poured out during the tribulation period. It started, uh, maybe you remember with the seals being opened, then it moves to the trumpets and then it it takes uh, its final shape and form with the bull judgments. It's the final phase of God's judgment on the earth. And included in that is the destruction of Babylon that is described in detail in chapter 17 and 18. But chapter 16 also tells us that the kings of the earth under the influence of the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, who is the Antichrist and the false prophet, uh, it tells us that the kings of the earth are gathered for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And there in Revelation 16, verse 16, it says, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. The battle is not, as is often stated, the battle of Armageddon. We we oftentimes refer to it in that way, Uh, but it's really not the battle of Armageddon. You see, Armageddon is the staging area. It is the battle for Jerusalem. That is the final battle. It's the battle of Jerusalem in which Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel will come and rescue Jerusalem from destruction. So the return of the King, remember when Jesus was hanging upon the cross, Pilate put as a placard above him, he wrote these words, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And there Jesus on the cross was laying the righteous foundation for his kingdom. And here in Revelation 19, we see him coming to establish now that kingdom that he laid the foundation for upon the cross. Now, this event is spoken of many different times in the scripture and seen from a number of different perspectives. So I I wanted to read to you some of the other uh, descriptions of this same event. And I wanna read a couple of passages from the Old Testament and then a few passages from the New Testament. So I think it's important that we realize that uh, the, the coming of the Lord to rule and reign is something 
that is not just talked about in the book of Revelation or even in the New Testament for that matter. It's something that the prophets, this is what they predicted. And so it was Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied in the 63rd chapter and he said this, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? The answer, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I, have sustained, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I have trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Isaiah, he's predicting the very same event. It's the Lord. He's coming, says, coming from Edom, coming from the area uh, east of Israel, and coming with his garments stained in red, which of course is a reference to blood. But then Zechariah speaks of this same event as well in the 14th chapter. And this is what Zechariah said. He said, behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, your spoil will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west. Thus, the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Isaiah chapter 14, verses one through four, five and nine. So there we have Isaiah's description. And Isaiah, or excuse me, uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, notice, makes it very clear that this is the battle of Jerusalem. The Lord said, I'm gonna bring all, I'm gonna gather all of the nations together against Jerusalem. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus spoke of this event. He said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Paul, the apostle wrote of the same event, second Thessalonians one, he said, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And then one final passage from Jude verses 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so each one of these passages are really summaries or just different perspectives on the slightly more detailed account that's given to us here in Revelation 19. Now, the, the, the reality is none of these give the kind of detail that we would probably wish that they did. And as we look here more closely at Revelation 19, you know, you, in some ways you have to sort of read between the lines. In some ways you have to, to fit into Revelation 19 some of the stuff that's said in the Old Testament and other parts of the New Testament. But there's still at the end, there's so many things that the truth is we will just have to live through it to, to see all of the details of it. But I want to just walk us through the verses that we read together initially here in Revelation 19. And so it begins in verse 11. John says, now I saw heaven open. Think about that for a moment. You know, we've read about this in books. Of course, we read it right here in the Bible. We've, we've even seen uh, depictions, maybe not of this exact event, but we've seen these kinds of depictions through our, our modern uh, abilities, you know, with film and, and all of that kind of thing. You know, we've seen these fantastic kinds of things where the heavens open and, and you know, supernatural forces come and, you know, most of the time they're coming to invade the earth and, you know, it's a bad thing. But the point that I want to make is this. This is not symbolic language. This is literal heaven is going to open and every single person in the world is going to see this event. Every single person is going to see the sign of the son of man. As Jesus said there in Matthew 24, then all, all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn as they see heaven open and Christ coming out of the heavens. So, you know, we live in the natural world, the material world, but we coexist with the material world excuse me, but the spiritual world. And there's a point, there, there have been points in history where the, the spiritual world sort of breaks in upon uh, the material world. I think of the story back in the Old Testament in the book of Kings, where the prophet Elisha, he's in the city of Dotham. And he's there and the Syrian army has come and they've surrounded the city to take the prophet and the, the servant or the assistant of the prophet, he, he sees that the armies have surrounded the city and he's, he's overwhelmed by this. He's undone by this. He says, oh, alas, master, look, you know, we're surrounded. And Elisha prays and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opens the eyes of the servant of Elisha and he sees that surrounding the army that's surrounding the city are chariots of fire. He sees that there is a spiritual army that the Lord has surrounded this army with. So that's the reality that exists. We think most of the time of things just strictly in the sense of the material, you know, what we can see, what we can touch and, and so forth with our senses. But there's a spiritual reality. And at this time, that spiritual reality is going to break forth, obviously, for everyone to see in the return of Christ as heaven is open and behold a white horse. Now this, some of you will remember, we had a similar picture 
back in the sixth chapter, we saw somebody going forth conquering. They were on a white horse. They went out to conquer. But we noted that that wasn't Jesus Christ. That was the Antichrist. But now here we have the true Christ riding upon a white horse as well. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Some have suggested that God has no right to judge the world. (laughs) Who is God to judge the world? And even some liberally-minded Christians have said, well, you know, if, if Jesus is going to come back and, and judge the world or, or if he's going to come back and make war, then what's the difference between Jesus and all the other warmongers that have existed throughout history? You've got to be pretty twisted in your theological view to think that way, but some people do. Well, the difference is this. The one who's going to make war is faithful and true, and he's going to make war in righteousness. You see, this will be the truly one and only just war that there's ever been in the, in the truest sense. I'm not saying there haven't been previous just wars, but this will be the, the ultimate in the just war because the one who's waging the war is righteous and his judgment is going to be a righteous judgment. There will be nothing unfair about it. There will be nothing that anybody in the end would be able to say, well, you know, I don't know if that was right, what, uh, what Jesus did there. No, everything he does will be right. He's faithful. He's true. He's righteous. Yes, he is making war, but he's doing it in righteousness. He's judging and making war. So it is absolutely right and righteous that he does this. And then we have a description. Beside being called faithful and true, we see his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. So the eyes of fire speak of, uh, they speak of his, you know, like his ability to see through everything. So his, his gaze is piercing. There's nothing that's hidden from his sight as the scriptures tell us about God. So it's, it's kind of a way of describing his, his knowing of all things. So again, he's judging according to absolute truth. That's also contained there in the picture of his eyes being as a flame of fire. And on his head, notice, were many crowns. Many crowns. He is the king of kings. All other kings are uh, submitted to him. And then he had a name written that no one knows except, uh, no one knew except himself. So this is a name that is yet to be disclosed. And when the Lord comes at that time, evidently he will reveal that name. But at, at this point, even at this point in history, this is a name that only he himself knows. But he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Remember the picture from Isaiah 63? The same picture. And his name is called the Word of God. If there's any question as to who John is talking about, he uh, clears it up right here. His name is called the Word of God. Remember, John wrote the gospel. 
And how did he begin the gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so his name is called the word of God. Of course, he's speaking of none other than Jesus. Jesus is the one that is coming here. And he goes on and he says, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are these that follow him on white horses? Well, the, the clue that is given to us is in their description or the description of their apparel. Fine linen, white and clean, another place tells us, which is the righteousness of the saints. So the army that's coming with Jesus back to bring judgment upon the earth is a combination of the saints and the angels. We know that the angels are involved in the last judgment. Jesus made that clear. Old Testament passages speak about that. So this is an army that is made up of both angels and saints. The saints that are being referred to here are all of those that have put their faith and trust in Christ and became part of his kingdom, part of his church. So in other words, that's us. That's, that's the church. That's who he's describing here. This is mind-blowing. Stop and think about this. What we're reading about right here we are going to participate in it. That's the, that's the astounding thing about the book of Revelation. As you're reading through some of this, remember back in the, the fifth chapter where there we saw that vision of heaven and there's the one sitting upon the throne, God the Father, and there's the lamb as though he had been slain. He comes and he takes the scroll and there's the, the elders and, and all of the saints break forth. We're going to be there. We're going to be eyewitnesses to that event. And now here's another eyewitness event. And like I was saying earlier, I, I wish there was more detail. You know, like, uh, you know like, like the Lord of the Rings books, for example. I have the Lord of the Rings uh, on my nightstand. And that thing is about, you know, I don't know, a thousand pages or something like that. It's the trilogy. It's all three of the books together. But you know, when you read those battles in there, when you read about all of that, there's so much detail that Tolkien gives. Sometimes it's tedious. It's like, okay, let's move on from all those details. <laughs> you know? But at the same time, you get, you get those details and you, you've really got this clear picture in your head. Well, like I said, the Bible doesn't give us that much detail. We're just gonna have to wait and see what it's like when we live through it. But that's what's being described here. Jesus comes and the armies of heaven are with him. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And the sword out of his mouth is another way of describing his word. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. This is uh, the promise of the second Psalm. This is what Jesus referred to in writing to the churches that uh, just as he would rule with a rod of iron, those who faithfully followed him, they would be given that same authority. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, the idea of ruling it with a rod of iron is that there will be no resistance that is allowed. There will be no uh, tolerance of any kind of rebellion whatsoever. 
He's going to rule his kingdom firmly. And then he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Remember back in the 17th chapter, it spoke of the Lamb and him being victorious. He is going to trample. The picture of the wine press, of course, is that of, of, of grapes being pressed and the juice flowing, but the picture here is one of blood. And that's why he has a garment dipped in blood. And that's why the Isaiah prophecy, who is this who comes from Edom, whose garments are dyed red? It's because of that judgment that he himself is executing. You see, the thing is, Jesus is the one executing the judgment. It's him. He came humbly as the Savior and died for the sins of the world and has extended a gracious offer to all humanity for the past 2,000 years, the gracious offer of forgiveness of sins based upon the redemptive work that he did on the cross. And we have pictured him as that one who's full of grace, who's full of mercy, who's humble and gentle in heart and all of that. And all of that is true. But when he comes again, he will come with a different demeanor. He will come as the judge. And he himself will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The return of the king. The king has come again. He's the King of Kings. Now, this is speaking of his position in the future. He's going to establish his kingdom, and there will be kings throughout the earth that, of course, he will be the king over them. He will establish lords throughout the earth, but he will be the Lord over them. But it also speaks of the present situation. It's just that presently people do not acknowledge it. Jesus is right now the king of kings. You know, there's not a single ruler on the planet that does anything that he does not allow for them to do. Men are not autonomous like they think they are. Men are not independent of God like they think they are. You know, it, it always amazes me to listen to uh, the boastings of, of certain people, you know, pe people in power and so forth. And, you know, the, the attitude is, is one uh, of, you know, we made ourselves. We're, we have uh, this, you know, it's an attitude of pride, basically. It's like uh, Belshazzar, the king. He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe you remember that story there in Daniel where he's having this, this great feast with all of his lords and he decides to mock the God of heaven, the God that the Jews worship. And he calls for the, uh, the different things that his grandfather had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He calls for the gold uh, cups and the bowls and things that were used in the, in the offering of the sacrifices. And he uses these to worship the gods of gold and silver and stone. And it's just this big mockery. He's just mocking the true God. And suddenly, you remember the story, there's a hand that appears and it writes on the wall. Meeny, meeny, tuckle, you farson. And, and instantly, 
Belshazzar is undone. It says that his, his uh, joints were loosened and his knees began to smote one against the other. You know, that, that's the reality uh, of, the, of the prideful people who have ruled over the world in one instant. And, and what, what my point was is that Daniel, when he finally comes to Belshazzar, he says this. He says, the God in whose very hand your breath is, you have not glorified. And you know, you think of the, the people today in power in this world. One, their breath, they can't even breathe except God allows them to, but they, they don't acknowledge it. They won't acknowledge it. They refuse to acknowledge it, but they will one day. They will have to. They will be forced into submission. And so that's what we're talking about here. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but it will be manifested universally that that is the case. So this is the, the return of the king. But what about the beast? What about the armies? What about all of the forces that have uh, arrayed themselves and, and lined up against him? Well, look at what it says in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the beast, remember the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this is the most mind-boggling thing of all time. You know, think of all these science fiction movies that we have today, and it just seems like every other movie that comes out of Hollywood today is a science fiction movie, that there's some invasion from another world, you know, from outer space, and all the people of the world have to join together to fight off this uh, invasion. And, you know, it, it's, it's almost like this. Here's what's happening. The beast has gathered together the armies of the earth. They've, they've gathered in that, that valley of Armageddon there, or the valley of Megiddo, and they're coming up against Jerusalem. But in the end, and this is the thing that's most astounding, they are going to actively, intentionally fight against God. They're, they're going to knowingly fight against the Lord. But what happens? The beast was captured and with him, the false prophet who worked the signs. See, this is what I mean about, like, tell us more about how the beast was captured. <laughs> tell us, like, how, he, you know, that, that's, that's what you want to see. You know, you want to see that moment where, they, oh, they got it. They got the beast, you know. Remember, because the beast was the one that they said, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? Remember, he had that deadly wound that was healed, and everybody clamored after the beast. Oh, who is like him? And here is this blasphemous, arrogant person who has deceived the whole world and seems to be invincible. And he comes up against the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and the beast was captured. And along with him, the false prophet 
who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So here's the scene. And we need to understand this. This takes place over, over a period of time. This, this is not, you know, sometimes I think we read about this and we think, okay, it just, you know, it happens in a flash and it's all said and done. Jesus comes back. All the enemies are destroyed and the righteous kingdom is set up and poof, it's all just perfect now. We live in a perfect world. It all happened in, you know, 20 minutes. Uh, no, this is, this is something that's happening over a period of time, weeks probably, maybe even a bit longer. Because what you have is the nations of the world under the, the leadership of the Antichrist, they're coming to, to destroy Jerusalem. Je- uh, Zechariah 14, I will gather all the nations of the earth against Jerusalem. And so they're coming and they're, they're seeking the destruction of Jerusalem. And remember, Zechariah 14, half the city is taken. And so all of this is going on. This battle is taking place. And it's in the midst of this battle that Jesus comes to the rescue of Jerusalem. That's the picture. He comes. And that's why Isaiah says, who is this who comes from Edom? He comes from the east. And it seems because he comes with his garments already stained that he is already engaged in in war as he's making his way to Jerusalem. Now we know that the, we saw last week how Babylon is destroyed. Maybe Babylon is the first place to, to take the hit from the Lord. But then he comes and he's coming to Jerusalem. And like um, Zechariah prophesied, he will put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will split in two. Do you remember in Luke's gospel when Jesus ascended to heaven? Where did he ascend from? He ascended from the Mount of Olives. And when he was ascending up into heaven and the disciples were standing there looking, uh, the angel appeared to them and said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who left just like this is gonna come back in the exact same way and he's gonna come back to the exact same spot. Jesus left from the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back and show himself as the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. He's going to come right back to that place. So then as as Jesus comes, then apparently word will (laughs) spread that the king is returned. And again, in Zechariah, it talks about how suddenly the eyes of the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to be opened and they're going to realize, it says they're going to look upon me whom they have pierced. They're going to mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. There's going to be weeping and lamentation in Jerusalem like there never has been before. The Jews' realization that they have rejected their Savior all of these centuries but now in mercy, he has come to save them. So that word is apparently going to go out and then all the the rallying of all of these troops, the beast and the, the armies of the world. And yet the battle is over before it gets started. And 
once the Lord returns because the beast is captured and with him the false prophet and they are cast alive into the lake of fire. These are the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire. Now the lake of fire, we commonly call it hell. The, the Greek word in the New Testament is Gehenna. And there's no one in Gehenna today. Everyone who has died up until this point, if they've, if they've been a believer, they've gone to be with the Lord. If they've not been a believer, they've gone to what the Old Testament calls Sheol or the New Testament calls Hades. They go to, a, it's, a, it's a waiting place, really. It's kind of like, you know, a, a criminal goes to jail, goes to trial, and then is sentenced to prison or whatever the case might be. So, so this is kind of like jail. They're in jail. And one day, after the great white throne judgment that we'll get to later, those who have rejected Christ will then themselves be cast into the lake of fire. But the beast and the false prophet are the first two to inhabit it. They will be the first two in the lake of fire. And then it says the rest, and that's a reference to the armies that have come with them. The rest were killed with a sword which proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So the armies will be uh, obliterated. Now, remember, the saints are coming back with the Lord. The angels are coming back with the Lord. And no doubt, this is where the saints and the angels are going to execute part of this judgment. Now, um, I don't know how many of you saw the, the film, The Lord of the Rings, how many of you saw the, the final one, The Return of the King, but there's, there's a part in there. And I don't know that it's, it's, it's a good analogy in one way, so receive it in that way. Uh, in another way, it's just the, the visual, the visual, the, the guys who, the guys are not the good guys. They're, they're kind of bad guys. It's the, the dead of Dunharo. Remember those guys? They were the guys who were bad and they broke their oath. And so they were confined to be in death. And then Aragorn, he goes and he summons them. He shows them he's got the sword. And then so they, in order to get out of this dead state, they're going to do something good for once and they're going to you know, fight with him. But it's this army of spirits, basically. That's my point. It's a, it's a spirit army. And they just mow down all of the rest of the armies. And it just, it's this great visual where it just shows these, you know, sort of ghostly like guys with their battle axes and their swords and everything. And they just go through and they just sweep everybody away. You know, I kind of visualize, except for the bad dead guy part, uh, <laughs> That's kind of what it's going to look like. And we're talking about an army of glorified saints. You see, that's the thing. The saints are glorified. And the angels. And so, in, in a sense, it's a spiritual army. That this earthly army, with all of the weaponry, with all of the amazing um, you know, advancement in... Uh, technology that we have today with all of the weapons that we have today that are so far beyond anything anybody's ever knew in history. Of course, those will be the weapons that are brought to bear, but they will be of absolutely no use. And so the armies are destroyed. Now think about this. The world still has plenty of people in all different kinds of locations 
And what's going to happen now? Well, again, like I was saying, it isn't an instantaneous thing. There's a process. The Lord, I believe the armies now will be sent out from there to the various parts of the world to subject everything to Christ over a period of time. There's an interesting passage in Daniel that seems to indicate there's a 45-year, uh, a 45-day period from the time the Lord actually sets his foot back on the Mount of Olives till there's the, this final judgment. There's like a 45-day sort of a cleanup uh, campaign that goes on. And so that's what's happening. But then it says, one, one other thing here, it says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The parallel passage in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 39. Listen to what it says. It says, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat the flesh and drink the blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. This is the parallel passage. This is why I personally do not believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 are a separate battle from the one that we're talking about here. I think it's the same battle. It's the same outcome. And that's a different study. But the point is, the armies are slain. The, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. But what about the devil? Well, turn the page to chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into, notice, not the lake of fire, but the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So the devil who instigated the whole thing from the very beginning he is now dealt with, and he is confined in the bottomless pit. There's a seal upon him, and for 1,000 years, he is restricted. Now, we're gonna, we'll get into it later, but he will, of course, be released for a short time. He will have no effect on any of the believers, but he will try to rally a, 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 another rebellion against Christ. He'll be overthrown. And then he will be cast into the lake of fire to join the beast and the false prophet. And all of those who followed him throughout history will then be cast into the lake of fire as well. So we just jumped way forward here in Revelation, but that's where everything is headed. Now, as we close, I want to close with um, a reading just reading the second Psalm, because the second Psalm is really the, the place where all of this is, again, without the detail, it's all pretty much stated. But let me just say this before I do that. You know, this is like, it's like C.S. Lewis said, you know, because in a lot of ways, this, this is like, it's like all of the greatest legends. It's like all of the greatest myths, you know. When I was a kid, I loved like, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and, you know, all of, all of those kinds of um, stories. 
You know the story where the, the king was maybe, my, my favorite movie of, of all time probably is the movie uh, with Charlton Heston uh, called El Cid. And you know, it's about this um, you know, a Spanish uh, ruler back during the uh, 12th century. And um, you know, anyway, he's, you know, he's exiled. He's the righteous guy, and, but he's rejected by the king and he's exiled and all of this stuff. But anyway, he comes back and he basically saves the people from this great Islamic invasion and so forth. And, and you know, he's actually a, a, a Spanish national hero. But, but anyway, it's, my point is this. We know it. I mean, you see it in Star Wars. You see it in the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, you see it in all of these different places. You see the same story. It's the story, basically, of good conquering evil. It's the story of the, of the true king, the righteous king, the one who was rejected, the one who was exiled, but who comes back and he wins the day and he establishes the kingdom those are stories that are just borrowed from the greater story. And my point about C.S. Lewis is he said this to Tolkien. He said, he said, this is the myth that is true. Like all, all of these other myths have, have drawn from this one, but this one's true. And that's the reality. This one is true. And as we look around, you know, the Bible gives us things to look at and we see that the Bible it, it just tells us where everything's going and we're right on course. We're following course, just as, as the scripture said. But here in the Psalm, the second Psalm, as we close, let me read it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That is what we've just read about. That's what's happening. God, as the nations try to throw off the yoke of God and his Christ, and man, they are doing their best to do it now, aren't they? But as they attempt to do it, he that sits in the heaven shall laugh. But look at verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This is God's counsel to the kings of the earth. But nobody's listening. This is God's word to the judges of the earth, but they've turned a deaf ear to it. Kiss the son. Humble yourself before the son. Pay homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish. And tragically, we know the story that that is what will happen. Most of the kings of the earth will shun this word from God and bring 
about their own demise. But for every single person, whether you're a king or a judge or anything else, this is God's word to everyone. Kiss the sun. Humble yourself before the sun. Pay homage to the sun. And those who do that are blessed. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. You're blessed today. Your sins are forgiven. You're blessed today. You enter into a relationship with God. You live in fellowship with him. And then you're blessed forever because you're part of this wonderful kingdom that he's going to establish. So Lord, we thank you for this great and momentous event that will come upon the world. Lord, we read it. And we just say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, come soon. That's our heart. That's our cry to you. But Lord, as we await your coming, help us, Lord, to serve you. Help us to do so with all of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to kiss the sun. Help us, Lord, to devote ourselves to you. And Lord, for anyone with us today that is yet to humble themselves before you, I pray that they might do that today, that they would know the blessing of those who put their trust in you. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.